السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين Brothers and sisters, welcome to another session of the Khilafa podcast coming to you live from Sydney, Australia uh, Today we got a very important conversation to be had uh, I think something that touches upon uh, life of the Muslims today not just here in the West but uh, Muslims globally Um we live in an unprecedented era unprecedented in so many ways um even if some of it may feel familiar even if we try to draw analogies with what existed before us perhaps the scale of the problem is different perhaps the nature of the problem is different but what we can be certain of is that the magnitude of the problem the magnitude of what we confront uh its complexities um and most importantly uh the invisibility with which it all works makes what we confront today a very difficult phenomena which for many reasons probably explains why it still persists to this day tonight's discussion is titled engaging with our islam today between idealism and defeatism what we pointed to here is a set of um conceptual abstractions that for one reason or more is pro- quite problematic for us as muslims and quite de- detrimental to our efforts to reestablish islam or revive islam uh there is an explainable phenomenon though that in a long in a very large way uh provides insight into why this is the case because in many ways we seem to reside on opposite ends of a spectrum um and there's very little room for for a proper understanding of really what it is that we confront as an ummah today and and as equally importantly the reasons why we confront what we confront today on the one hand you have the idealism which broadly we'll describe as uh an ideal where we per, we we fantasize or pursue a utopia that only exists in the books and on the other side is defeatism where we no no uh, we don't just accept uh the reality in in front of us but we succumb to it and we alter as a consequence our conception of islam and our behavior as muslims um and both of them are unacceptable because there is a way in which islam is supposed to function uh islam is not just a book that was revealed so we can read it uh islam was not revealed to us by the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam so that may, we may just contemplate over um, metaphysical questions it's not a philosophy um islam did not come so we can remove ourselves from society uh and 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 separate ourselves and introduce a a class based system um defined around uh, notions of of piety or taqwa or anything like that that's not the purpose of islam islam came to guide the quran came to lead by its instruction the muslims are obligated to disseminate this deen to practice it themselves to carry it as a role model for the rest of mankind our fundamental purpose in this life after worshiping allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to carry the deen to take humanity from the darkness into the light so there's a practicality to islam that demands its application 
that demands its implementation. So if we were to conceive of an Islam that remains distant from reality, or the opposite, that we allow our Islam to be defined by the reality in which we seek to engage, then both of those propositions are very problematic for us. The first, because we don't achieve the purpose of Islam, and the second, because ultimately we end up acquiescing and compromising our Islam. But we're not here today to to bash ourselves and to bash the Ummah. We're not here to reinforce a certain level of uh, trauma, self-hate that pervades um, many circles. Uh, but I wanted to, at the very least, explain the phenomena before we get into it. Look, there is a certain acknowledgement that needs to be had. Um, and that is, we have lived over the last few centuries a very traumatic life as Muslims. We've had a very traumatic existence. This thing called colonialism, this thing called the advent of modernity and its imposition on us in the Muslim world, the fact that we are having this conversation here in the heart of, of Kufur, um, whether in Australia or Europe or America, um, is not something you just utter in a sentence and move on. You don't just uh, casually um, peruse the question of what transpired over centuries and its enormous transformative effect upon us. It's not just something we experience, it's something that's radically uh, affected us and changed us. Um, ourselves, our conception of Islam, whilst the, the book will be preserved, the deen itself will be preserved, it doesn't necessarily mean our adherence to it or our understanding of it will. Uh, we've suffered political uh, subjugation, political repression, military onslaught, military occupation, economic depravity. Uh, the list is very long. And this has been going on for centuries. Uh, and in the last century, particularly given the fall of the Khilafah, We've experienced all of this on unprecedented levels. For the first time in our history as Muslims, the Kufar have completely dominated us. There was an instance at the time of the Prophet ﷺ where there was a great existential question during one of the battles, uh, the Battle of the Khandaq, where really the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims were concerned that they could be overrun and their existence as a Muslim community um, was under threat. And that was dealt with, alhamdulillah, and Islam flourished after that. Uh, in the history, many parts of the Islamic lands were occupied. Baghdad, uh, Palestine, many other places, um, and sometimes for considerable amounts of time. And many times with considerable carnage. But with, in each of those cases, one, it was not comprehensive, and two, we eventually bounced back. But what we've experienced since World War One is the complete colonization of the Muslim world. The Kuffar had complete control over our lands, over our people, over ourselves. And this is going to have its ramifications. Now forget for the moment uh, the political implications or the economic implications, the starvation, uh, the poverty, uh, the, the exploitation of resources, uh, even the killing of the people on unprecedented scales. Put that to the side for a moment not because it's a footprint, but because it's not our conversation today. But let's think about the implications of colonialism. Let's think about the implications of imposing a worldview uh, that's entirely foreign to us. Um, you don't lose your authority 
and succumb to your enemy um, and pretend this is going to be a small thing for you. And you don't, and especially when when that that process is comprehensive. The political onslaught meant that our authority was stripped from us, that the kuffar could control us and control every aspect of our life. The military onslaught meant that we were going to be under occupation, direct or indirect. We were going to suffer huge losses. We were going to experience huge sacrifices. Um, and some things still to this day have not been acknowledged, let alone uh, been properly addressed. We live and carry intergenerational trauma um, that not only is not dealt with, but compounded successively because of the successive attacks against us. Um, we live and have experienced for centuries ideological onslaught. Uh, the imposition of effectively liberalism on the one hand, capitalism on the other, democracy on the other, uh, whatever ism it is, brought to us from the West, imposed over us, uh, which stands as a direct contradiction to everything Islam represents. You don't go from a God-centered world where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is at the center of the universe, where we bow down to him, subhanahu wa ta'ala, in all our affairs, to an ideology based around liberalism and the glorification of the self uh, and the reverence of the individual and then, and then everything that that represents. You don't um, transition from one to the other without enormous transformative implications. Um, it's not a surprise that our societies are characterized by notions uh, relevant to liberalism, of individualism, of secularism, of democracy. Um, even in, in instances where the West was happy to apply dictatorships over us, still the poison of secularism was there, the poison of liberalism was there and still remains there to this day. Um, part of this, of course, is the introduction of modern statehood. Um, and we were not separate from that. Um, for, for, from our perspective as a Muslim, we went from uh, an instance where we were by and large united around Islam, around singular leadership um, for the for the for most part of our history, um, and especially towards the end of it, the Uthmani Khilafah represented the unity of the Muslims despite some problems we're having here and there. And not to downplay that, but we went from this notion that central to Islam's political model is uh, the concept of unitary ruling. And that was transformed into conceptions of nation-statehood that were entirely foreign, that necessitated the existence of a set of um, identities that were entirely foreign, were entirely artificial in nature, and were, were imposed upon us um, through colonialists. And we find ourselves today with more than 50 states, whereas historically we were one, um, we have competing loyalties where historically it was always one. We have multiple political models today. Um, and in any way you look at it, whether it's cultural or political or, or any other consideration, we are divided more than we have ever been. And these divisions have become institutionalized. And so we went from an era which, which dominated Islamic history, which was one of unity to one of entrenched disunity. And you can't go from one to the other without it having a, a, a lasting effect on our condition. And all of these realities, our interaction with colonialism, our interaction with modernity, all of these realities are still present in the Muslim world as they are globally. Um, and their effects upon us are still pervasive as they were historically. 
And what I want us to appreciate is the effect all of this will have, has had, and continues to have upon us as individuals, as a society, as an ummah, our conceptions of Islam, our conceptions of ourselves. Um, it's not a small thing when you say your enemies now control your education institutions and they are teaching you not just what they bring with them, but they are teaching you your Islam as well. And so even if we wanted to build a resistance effort on the basis of Islam, we have to acknowledge that our, our understanding and our framing of Islam has been corrupted as well. That's not a small, that's not a small um, argument to make. These are not small implications. These are not developments that have small implications. We went from an era where our scholars were our vanguards and they were the model of resistance to now scholars, for instance, being, and I, and I speak in general terms, uh, scholars being the vanguard of the status quo, vanguard of defeatism, models of political subservience, um, are, you know, models of, of political uh, ineptitude. And of course, we as an Ummah are going to reflect that. We historically, we went to our scholars and we went to prominent personalities for guidance. And when the Kufar controlled the institutions from which scholarship is born um, and produce a particular class of scholarship, naturally that's going to spill over to the Ummah. And so if our scholars stand defeated, then naturally the Ummah will stand defeated. And if our scholars are confused, then the Ummah will be confused. And if our scholars uh, lack political foresight and political insight, then naturally the Ummah will be a reflection of that. But no one should be under any impression that this is a universal, that this affects every scholar, this affects every class of scholar, uh, or every category of scholar, nor does it affect every corner of the Ummah. Of course, there are exceptions to this, and of it is on the basis of those exceptions that the Ummah, in fact, has stood up very strongly again and continues to resist and remains in an, in an active mode of resistance. But given all of this, we need to realize that the Ummah has suffered a lot. The Ummah has experienced a lot and continues to, to do so. The Ummah has not had an opportunity to take hold to properly take hold of what it has experienced. In other words, there has been uh, trauma on the grandest of scales uh, that not only remains unchecked, unaddressed, um, but is consistently um, made worse through the invention of new forms of trauma that are applied over us every single day. And so it's understandable, given those experiences, Muslims are going to be confused. Muslims are going to be weary. Muslims are going to be tired. Muslims are going to be confused. Muslims will be defeated, will lack confidence, will not have a positive um, sense of themselves. Um, it's understandable. Um, but what I want us to start exploring, though, is, okay, given those realities... How does all of this play out practically today? And what can, more importantly, what can we learn from that such that we can build uh, some sort of platform uh, for revival? And, and more urgently, and I think in, in terms of specificity, um, how do we take from all of this modes of engagement um, that define how we deal with each other how we deal with ourselves, 
and fundamentally how we deal with our Islam. Because as we said with the introduction, there seems to be two extremes here. There is an idealism where we rightfully and understandably uh, long for a purity of Islam, um, given what we've experienced um, and given the devastation that wreaks and given that we appreciate that what we experience, all of what we experience emanates from other than Islam, from what the Quran brought to us, um, then there is a natural desire, an understandably natural desire uh, to seek an attachment to an idealistic Islam. Now, there is nothing wrong with being idealistic. Islam demands it in many, many cases. Um, but this is not what we're referring to. Idealism here working insofar as uh, working as an, ex- as an excuse or a, a justification for one's detachment from the world. And this is what we're leading to. The other side of that, of course, is because we're so broken, because we're so traumatized, um, we stand defeated. We are so worn down, we don't have the will to fight. In some cases, we don't see its necessity to begin with because of how we've framed our Islam according to secular modes. Um, Given all of that, what lessons can we take? And how can we apply that? And there's four things I want to mention today. The first is, we need to acknowledge that, first and foremost, we need to acknowledge that we are shaped by these experiences and not just influenced by them. So it's not as if we exist in in an independent space um, and colonialism and our colonial experience exist somewhere else. It has has had and continues to have an enormous effect on us to the extent that um, in many, 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 many ways it has completely reshaped us. Um, and if it wasn't for the fact that we hold in our hands the Qur'an, which is timeless, and we believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is above all that we experience, uh, we would not have the anchor um, to be able to refer back to something that was pre-colonial, pre-modern. But that's the glory to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He has given us the Qur'an and sworn to protect it. And so it's just a matter of time before we attach ourselves to its centrality to its central message and use it as a mechanism to revive ourselves. Um, but no other nation that has gone through a similar experience has been able to do that, has the capacity to do that. Um, the effect colonialism has had on them has been so transformative that to a large extent what existed before it will never exist again. You can find remnants of it. You can demand and, and work very tirelessly to recapture parts of it, but its effect is permanent. But not with Muslims. And that's because what we possess, of course, exists independent of uh, political realities. The reason I bring this up, right, the fact that we are shaped by these things, not just influence them, as if it's just something minor, we can just create an environment around ourselves where we can be free from its influence, we need to be clear that we cannot um, exist um, in effectively what would be a bubble. We cannot pretend to exist, and that's probably more important, because you can pretend to, do, to uh, establish a pure, pure Islamic uh, environment for yourself that's free from um, all that is bad around you, 
or all that is bad from what we've experienced and effectively create a bubble for yourselves. Um, and whilst we should definitely be aiming to achieve something close to that to the extent possible, um, it ignores the reality in which life itself today f- um, happens. Um, everything we think, even everything we think that is Islamic, um, we need to question genuinely um, how Islamic that is. And the idea of the bubble here is not necessarily this contest over what is Islamic and un-Islamic, but what is the purpose of Islam itself? Because establishing a bubble for oneself, it's as if you're saying through your actions um, that it's more important for you to, to save yourself than it is to save humanity, or that you're going to prioritize um, yourself over everyone else, or somehow that you can be free from your environment such that you're not influenced by it, or that it's not your responsibility to change your environment, or that it's not your responsibility to be with the people in order to affect them, or you have this utopian view of what a change is, as if you can speak to a people from a distance um, and, and affect them in any meaningful way. Now, that's not the example of the Prophet ﷺ. We cannot allow ourselves to build a what is effectively a mental bubble, because the reality would never exist. But it's in our heads. But the opposite can't be true either. We can't completely give in to the reality. Because reality is built on kufr, it's built on haram, it's haram wherever you go. Um, and so we need a clearer conception of how to actually engage, given what's in front of us is so uh, understandably bad. And I want to raise a couple of examples here. At the time of the Prophet wasallam, we know there are many, many, many evils that he wasallam addressed and confronted. Whether it's the burying of the daughters, uh, the, the obvious one about worshipping the idols, um, whether it's you know dancing naked around the Kaaba, whether it's cheating in the scales, um, uh, you know whatever example you bring, there is the uh, what we call extramarital relations. Um, there was there was all and sundry, but you never find the example of the Prophet where he and his companions pick themselves up and remove themselves from society. You're not going to find that in any like in permanent sense. There were refuges set up. The Prophet used to um, the Prophet used to meditate in the cave, but then return. You find solace, um, you know, nourishment, spiritual nourishment, and return. Uh, the companions, when they became of a certain a certain number and certain size, they established Dar al Arqam in Mecca. And that was a, a you know a, a central meeting place for Muslims where they gathered together, did what they did, strengthened themselves and their convictions and, and their ibadat and, what, and whatnot, but went back out. There was this idea that we could separate ourselves from society was never the example of the Prophet And the thing here is, given what we know of trauma, of 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 uh, of loss, of confusion, of trepidation, of uh, angst, anxiety given what naturally exists, given what we've experienced, uh, it's understandable that we would try to remove ourselves completely from these things in order to preserve ourselves. There's no problem with that as an idea. But in reality, right, the Prophet confronted the munkar in front of him. Um, but what I need us to appreciate is that this munkar was happening in front of him. And he did not remove himself from that. He's offered the Islamic perspective on it. Um, he didn't engage in it. The companions did not engage in it. 
but they confronted it. And in order to confront it, you need to deal with it. And when you deal with it, it's in front of you. And so, for instance, you have this mentality where, you know, parent, a lot of parents with their children think, okay, the most important thing we do for our kids is let's just completely remove them from any environment which contains haram. To the extent that don't associate with non-Muslims or anyone, anyone any of your friends, Muslim or non-Muslim, uh, that does anything haram, remove yourself from him, um, do not turn on the TV, do not, everything, do not, just completely isolate yourself from the world. You create this artificial bubble. Um, but that was not the example of Prophet. What was the example of Prophet is that he offered the Islamic perspective on the issue when it was confronted, taught his companions, may Allah be pleased with them all, about this issue and gave the Islamic position on it. And so when Muslims, when Muslims came across these things, they had the necessary Islamic framing of it in order to deal with it. It was not something is haram than run in the other in the other direction. Because where would you run? If you live in an environment that's dominated by kufr, that is built on haram, where would you run? Wherever you run, you're going to confront the same issue. And the issue here is the Muslims are not here to run away from the issue. They're here to confront it, to defeat it. Um, and in that respect, we need to appreciate that um, our job as Muslims is not to uh, just save ourselves while it is a priority, but it's not our job, our only job. Our job is to save humanity. And you can't save humanity if you don't live with them, if you don't engage with them in a meaningful sense. It's just important, of course, that we need to provide an Islamic framing of the, the issues that we will confront in order to know how to deal with them. So even if our children, for instance, have has a friend or you know a friend or a colleague or whatever that uh, does smoke or does swear or does whatever whatever kids do these days, um, and we know we know this reality because we we were raised in it too, and when we look back on on our experiences as children, we think the problem wasn't necessarily that we were exposed to things. The problem most often was that we did not had did not know how to frame it. We didn't have a proper Islamic understanding of the issue. And for that reason, and we could be affected by it. But it's like saying if we see someone bow down to a cow, that all of a sudden um, our tawheed is going to be under threat and, you know, and then never show any child or never show any Muslim uh, the reality of cow worship, for instance, or idol worship or, or worshiping a cross or anything like that. The problem is not being exposed to this thing. The problem is being exposed to it without the necessary Islamic framing of it. Um, you know, and that's why if we do things correctly by providing that framing, we actually go out proactively in order to address these issues because we do so with a purpose as opposed to, to functioning as fragile little creatures uh, forever afraid of the world um, and what it contains. That's not the Islamic approach. The second approach is given everything we've experienced, there's a certain trend um, in some circles where we have a preference for an abstract version of Islam where we're more concerned with the, the, the theoretical and the abstract. Um, and if we are genuinely honest with ourselves, um, a lot of the time, and I'm not saying exclusively, but a lot of the time, whether we realize it or not, this is our escape from the world. But again, that's not the purpose of Islam. Islam came down to, uh, was revealed in order to be applied. Islam came down to shape our lives 
and the lives of those around us came to transform not just individuals but societies. Um, and we should recognize the signs that if our attachment to Islam, which needs to be acknowledged, is a good thing, especially given what we've experienced, and this is not a, this is not what we're problematizing here. What we're problematizing is a certain approach to Islam. And the signs here, if if we're more concerned uh, with the theoretical than the practical, um, then we need to question how we're approaching Islam. If our adherence to Islam is making us more distant from the people, we need to question our, our, our practice of Islam. If our adherence to Islam or if our pursuit of Islam is making us more irrelevant to society, meaning we don't engage or we don't take positions on what is in front of us, um, if, for instance, we are um, have a preference for dealing with those issues which were raised in the past, and we're debating centuries-old conversations, uh, we need to be honest with ourselves. Is this just our escape from the world, um, given the ugliness of what's in front of us, given the difficulties of what's in front of us? Uh, whilst the ideal is 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 good, in the sense that we want to attach ourselves to Islam. Um, the way we've done about this and the reasons we're doing it, we need to question. And we need to be honest with ourselves. Um, Islam is not just here to be spoken about. Islam is to be applied. Islam is just not here to make us feel good uh, or, or entertain philosophical questions. Islam has a practical purpose um, on top of everything else. I mean, if our adherence to Islam or our pursuit of Islam is making us more theoretical, uh, more distant, more irrelevant... Um, and more historical, then we honestly need to be genuine with ourselves and say, is this really how we should be engaging our Islam? Um, the third thing I want to say is, um, Islam came to rescue people, not to condemn them. Look, we need to be very clear. Um, today we are all victims. Not to take away from the issue of personal responsibility, but given what we have all experienced as an ummah, we are all victims. We need to be absolutely clear about this. I need to stress, again, this takes nothing away from the element of personal responsibility, but what it does is offer a better perspective on um, uh, causes um, and uh, making us more balanced in apportioning responsibility. Um, you know, when someone grows up in a very traumatic household, and, and he starts to replicate the behaviors that he's witnessed at home and only ever known, um, then we understand at the very least in terms of tracing the problem that it's not necessarily because that person is bad, but the environment in which he was raised, the behaviors that became normalized um, were bad, and he's merely replicating what he knows. Um, in the same way, uh, Muslims who have been through the trauma of colonialism and continue to live it um, are really people who have suffered, uh, people who live very, very difficult existences. Um, and so he, the idea is, if you're going to rage, save it for where it's needed. Don't beat your chest um, against other Muslims. Um, it's knowing what we have experienced as Muslims. If anything, when someone's been through traumatic life experiences and, and, can, and, and continue to live it, you're going to increase your level of empathy, uh, your level of kindness, um, the way in which you en engage the issue, the way in which you approach the individual, the way you approach the whole issue is going to be more sympathetic, more understanding because of that reality. 
Um, but sometimes trauma plays out in a way that we seek out weaker victims because we can't deal with our our um, our fundamental oppressors, those who are causing us the pain, and so we take it out in other places where we feel we have an opportunity to do that. Um, but it's a devastating cyclical process that only drags us all down. So in that sense, um, you know, dealing with systemic forces is not a small question, it's not a small consideration. Um, whilst it's understandable that we can beat our chests on smaller prey and smaller victims, um, it does not go in any way to helping us address what is fundamentally a systemic issue. If anything, it, it compounds the problem because you're only serving to beat Muslims down even further. But on a personal level, we need to realise that this is an exercise in self-hate as well. Because we feel so bad about ourselves, we have to externalise that in very unproductive ways. So, in other words, go easy on the Muslims. That's not, that does not mean, as we'll come on the last point, that we should compromise our ideals or be easy on the question of halal and haram. That's not the point. But the point is, given what we have experienced, what is required more than ever is empathy, understanding, kindness, um, and efforts that raise us, not bash us further down. So drop the self-hate, drop the, uh, the judgmentalism uh, that goes with that. Um, but at the same time, you know, so when it plays out on an individual level, sometimes we think to ourselves and we convince ourselves because we're such bad Muslims um, that we may just accept uh, to stop all good things. And that's how the, the whispers of shaitan happen. Um, you know, but don't be too hard on yourselves. Uh, and especially don't be too hard on the ummah. And there's this saying on a personal level, um, you know, keep forgiving. On the ummah level, keep pushing. You know, like what we are confronting is huge. It's difficult. It's going to take time, effort. Um, and it's not going to be solved overnight. Um, not for us as individuals, not as an ummah. There is a lot that we need to sift through. Um, but um, don't engage in a way that ultimately compounds the problem. And just lastly on this question, um, I want to bring a principle to the table which I think we should take away um, as as a guiding framework for, for these sorts of conversations and these modes of engagement, and that is by distinguishing or making a distinction between, on the one hand, what is realistic, and on the other hand, what is pragmatic. And these are two different things. And pragmatic here is effectively, you know, accepting uh, to compromise on both your ideals and your your standards of action, your behaviours. Um, clearly, that's unacceptable from an Islamic point of view. But what is Islamic is this idea of being realistic. Realistic is not just accepting the status quo. Realistic is acknowledging that that's what's in front of you. It's not as if the Prophet ﷺ could have come and just pretended that they're not worshipping idols or pretend that they're not burying daughters or just close his eyes to the cheating that was happening in the markets or any other issue that you wanted to raise. Like, you can't do that. You need to acknowledge what's in front of you in order to engage with it productively. Islam didn't come down as a set of abstracts just to be uh, downloaded from the heavens and applied uh, universally in one hit. It's about connecting with what's in front of you, connecting with that reality. And so, for instance, what? Uh, you know, Muslims in America might need, for instance, given uh, you know the racial realities in America, and and what Muslims will need in another place, uh, will have its own particularities. The universal message of Islam is the, is the same. 
the ultimate objective is the same, um, but what is needed in order to get to that will depend on what's in front of you. Muslims who have a relatively comfortable existence, what you would say to them is different to uh, Muslims who are living under war and occupation. And what is required of them both is going to be different given those realities. And so there is no... There is no room here to be obstinate and stubborn and say, okay, um, you know, God forbid my son comes home one day and, and, and I find, you know, a crack pipe in his pocket or something. And I say, like, that's it. You're out. You're not my son anymore. And just, like, it's, it can't work like that. Um, you know, anyone that does anything, there, is, there needs to be that level of acknowledgement that this is the reality. And you need to work on that basis. Because if we were going to be obstinate in this approach, then we would be turning our backs not just on every Muslim, but on ourselves. By the standards of Islam, of course we are all failing today. That's the reality of living life, uh, you know, a life that's dominated by kufr, uh, where everything is about the haram and nothing about the halal. Um, but the way in which you engage that, the way in which you address that, of course has to be on Islamic principles both in terms of ideals and in terms of specific modes of action. Um, you know, the criteria broadly is always iman kufr um, and halal and haram. And there is no room for compromise on that. But the difference here, of course, is that, you know, just acknowledging what's in front of you is a big step. You know, just getting yourself out of this state of denial. and Picking yourself from, um, you know, a state of self-hate. From, from another angle or any other consideration, just acknowledging what's in front of you is very, very important. Because it allows Islam to become real. It allows your efforts to become real. Right? We're not living in the clouds. We're not living amongst the angels. We've got some serious problems in front of us, both on personal level and on ummah level. And we need to acknowledge that. Um, but the lesson is that the lesson when we draw a distinction between realism and pragmatism is that when we engage in pragmatic behavior, and pragmatic here I'm defining as us accepting to compromise, either in terms of aims or in terms of specific actions, um, we become the purveyors of the haram. So we end up, we are the ones doing the wrong. Whereas realism is, whilst acknowledging what's in front of you, you're not the ones responsible for it. So what's in front of you is wrong. But here you are being subjected to that. It's not the one, you're not the one carrying it out. So ultimately all we're responsible for is our actions. If there's something beyond us, beyond our capabilities, beyond uh, you know the, the elements of power in our hands, we're not responsible for that. We're responsible as an ummah to engage in, in a set of actions that ultimately puts us in that position where we do have the power, but in the meantime... We have a, a very, very simple choice. Do we accept uh, to remain uh, attached, to, uh, attached to our Islam and its clear conceptions of the ideal and the actions, or do we accept to compromise that for the sake of some perceived benefit and start uh, personally being responsible uh, for actions which are displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? The choice is very clear. It's one thing being subjected to a crime, it's another thing performing the crime yourself. Now clearly the implications here is when we hold ourselves to a clear Islamic standard, that means there are going to be multiple modes of actions that uh, we will not entertain. 
um, and our progress may very well be slower, um, may very well be more difficult, may very well um, incur the wrath of those who do dominate the status quo and do control the status quo. Um, but the question for us as Muslims genuinely is, is there, is there an alternative to that? Are there conditions where it is acceptable for us to engage in haram or to compromise the, the standard of iman and kufur? Clearly there is not. Um, especially when it's not a question of life and death for us. Um, ironically, those who would in any case um, have an argument for this are the ones that refuse it. Those who really do live under war and occupation and the most difficult of life circumstances. Uh, and yet they are a greater example for us of adherence to Islam than us who live in relatively comfortable environments. Um, so that distinction between re being realistic and being pragmatic is important. Uh, being realistic allows us to stay pure to Islam, um, even if it limits what we can do. Um, but it's more important to be clear about our position in front of, in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than it is to be uh, concerned about our position in front of other men. So in this sense, when we bring it all together, we say, yeah, look, the Muslims have experienced a lot. Uh, the Muslims have suffered a lot. Um, and the reaction to that has been understandable. In one extreme, we want to completely isolate ourselves. It's ugly. In the other extreme, we're completely defeated by it. Um, and that's ugly too. Um, and somewhere in the middle, there's a lot of confusion. And we're dealing with big existential questions. These are not small, small considerations. And as Muslims, as we're trying to sift through this, um, the message is simply to be more empathetic with one another, uh, to be more understanding of one another, to ensure that our engagement ultimately helps one another um, and not the opposite. We're not here to bash each other down. None of us are perfect. There is a lot of confusion. A lot of people have great intentions. But given our reality, um, lack the foresight, lack the insight, lack the awareness, lack the experience, whatever it is. Our job is to build, educate. Um, our job is to stand as, as a role model. Our job is to lead by example as Muslims. Um, and if we take this approach, we'll be a lot easier on ourselves a lot easier on our brothers and sisters, a lot easier on, on the ummah as a whole. And in no way means that we are more relaxed about the values of Islam or the principles of Islam or the criteria of action in Islam. It's the exact opposite. Islam demands that you live with the people, that when they laugh, you laugh. When they cry, you cry. You don't come from on top and talk down to a people. Um, you don't speak or stand at a distance and scream at a people. Um, their problem is your problem, your problem is their problem. If at any point there, there becomes introduced a separation or a, a distance between us and the rest of the Muslims, then you know the problem is not with the Muslims, the problem is with us. And in this way, idealism is not an idea that should be pursued, where we live in worlds of abstracts, um, but at the same time defeatism is not an acceptable option for us as Muslims. It's what's, what's needed of us is genuine engagement, based on the practicality of Islam, whilst acknowledging the reality in front of us, and dealing with it on that basis. And inshallah, if we pursue this method, um, adopt that framework, then our engagement will be more productive, more genuine, and inshallah, more acceptable.
to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Barakallahu feekum. Thank you for tuning in again. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.